when you just hear the tap 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 oh, tap 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 across. That's his, that's his like closed loop yeah. circular. Yeah. He's like in the what's the the like fifty cup on Mario Kart where it's like four courses yeah. and you just keep doing laps. Yeah. Got it. You hear that, and then you hear like clickety clack of uh, my dog nails going across the. It's very good ambience, right? <laughs> just sounds like utter chaos. I just the like I feel like if the um, like the study a- ambience ambiance girl where she's like at the table and then her cat's in the window that like everybody watched Lo-Fi Girl or whatever she's called. If it was like animated like that, it would be the cartoon version of your living room with Halloween decorations and then like anime like the the kid from Ponyo version of your tater tot like do 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 <laughs> and then just like the big like oversized exaggerated version of bear just like and then they'd go off screen and then like the next loop would start and they'd run back across from the other way and he would just and then halfway he'd like stop and eat something off the ground. Oh my god! <laughs> and then they would go back, and then the loop would restart again. Yeah. yeah and in the background would be like your husband taking laundry <laughs> <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fairly accurate. <laughs> uh, speaking of like cool ambient or things that we enjoy on the internet, I just want to give a quick shout out yeah, uh, to. It's Geodesaurus on Instagram. They're like my new favorite thing to put. They're on TikTok as well, but they do Spooky Lake Month and Haunted Hydrology. And uh, I don't know how well it's come across this podcast, but obviously I'm a bit of a science nerd on this couch. And this is like way up my alley of like it's spooky and it's like a naturally occurring thing. Yes, please sign me up. And I had to stop myself. I I didn't stop hard. I just like, maybe not right now, but I, I am going to be buying some of their apparel. I was like, this is, what a niche thing. I'm going to wear this to work. And people are going to be like, what is that? I'll be like, spooky link. Oh my God. Let me tell you about haunted hydrology with every time she opens, she goes, um, yes, hello. And I'm like, oh, and she's got like a Midwest Great Lakes sticker. I'm like, yes. I will buy. I almost bought like thirty dollars worth of stickers. Ridiculous! What am I doing? Yeah, that would be totally weird. <laughs> Especially, I mean, like at least you didn't buy a water bottle just solely for the purpose of buying stickers <laughs> and sticking on it. That's that's just banana crackers. <laughs> wow! Feel sorry for anyone who does that. Like I said, I just stopped for the evening. That doesn't mean like the sale only goes to Halloween and we're still filming. Pre- Is now a bad time to tell you that I get 25% off always on Redbubble and have a code that you could use? <laughs> I don't know if they're on Redbubble, but I'm going to keep that in mind. Okay. Well, just in case you find other spooky lake stickers. <laughs> I got I got the coops. From the BK Lounge. Oh That's a deep cut throwback. That is going to be very telling to how old you are, if you understand that reference. Coops, baby, coops. Where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All right, you're going to make a hard left out of the parking lot. You're going to drive to the end of the road. You're going to take a right, a left, another right. You're going to get on the highway and drive five miles, get off at exit 115. You're going to drive out in the middle of a cornfield. You're going to see a guy in a yellow rain slicker. That's Bob. He has your order. (laughs) Oh, God. (sighs) Yeah. Anyways, let's uh, dive in. Yeah, let's stop having fun and get back into the really depressing stuff. Yeah, I I do know male coworker was talking about how everything we discuss on this podcast is sad, depressing. Um, like surely next week you're gonna get into something really really fun and lighthearted, right? I was like, my guy, it's it's all sad. It's all sad. Ghost stories inevitably, like we're ta- we talk about ghost stories. We talk about I am even Mothman is shrouded in tragedy, but. Unfortunately, ghost stories are, uh, they're inevitably sad. They're dealing with death and grief and unresolved feelings. And, you know, people cling on to those things and they're interested in that because we fear death. Now we're getting real deep. But yeah. I think probably the most lighthearted we get is the, uh, sometimes the book reviews and the film reviews which by the way we have not told you what the next book to read is for our book club it's coming up our next book is it's all the good and no i keep screwing up this title sorry guys really messed up that uh i wasted a drum roll on you (laughs) the only good indians by stephen graham jones we'll probably discuss other side adjacent works to Stephen Graham Jones but that is what we will be mainly focusing on and if you have absolutely hated our last two book discussions well I'm judging you but also we are we're, you know it's a learning curve we're throwing spaghetti at the wall with or without chili and seeing what sticks I've and we are trying to restructure a little used bit that analogy so much lately and i'm like is this my new catchphrase it might be but i have recently been traumatized by spaghetti because of my my maids on a boat show (laughs) um there's like a drunk girl who is like eating her feelings and she's just shoveling fistfuls of spaghetti in her mouth while she was drunk and everyone was just staring at her like what's happening and wait was it just like plain cooked spaghetti it had some kind of sauce on it but i don't know what the sauce was that's better. If I think if it was just plain, that's more it horrifying. It was hanging out of her mouth like a Play-Doh fun factory, <laughs> oh though, Beth. And her eyes were, like, closed because she was drunk, and it was just like... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That sounds probably and great for you guys. And everyone's just like, please don't choke. And then the next morning, she was like, oh, my God, I'm so hungover. Did I eat? And they're all like, yeah, you did. <laughs> you did. Oh, sweet mother of Mary. So, anyway... <laughs> that's that's for you male co-worker that's where you get your lighthearted stuff it's when we're being stupid <laughs> it's not the topics we talk about we are going to be discussing as i said stephen graham jones so if you would like to read or follow along maybe you own the book maybe you want to download it from a library resource or you could check it out at your local library actually if you are in like the local area you might have a hard time doing it through the library because I tried to do it <laughs> and they're like do you want to wait eight weeks for it on hold I'm like no yeah I've I already read it I just wanted to kind of refresh myself but okay I think everybody's kind of getting the same vibes for for this time of year that it's a book to read right now so 
yeah, we will we will discuss him a little bit. We will discuss that book. We will be trying a little bit of a different structure for that episode. And please join us. Read along. If you think, oh, I want to read that at some point, you know, just skip that episode and come back to it after you've read it. But that is our next book club episode coming up in a few weeks. And uh, yeah, so without further ado, we will we will dive back into what we were discussing last week, which is uh, the continuation of the investigation of Lisa Pruitt's murder. Uh, do we want to quickly recap where we left off? Yeah, so I we we had sort of come to a stopping point um, when police had gone down to Columbus to the Ohio State University to interview, interrogate, however you want to phrase it, Kevin. Um, it was interview not a great a situation. Light, interview is a light word for that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite an arduous process. It was over 36 hours in a hotel room, and then they had to keep swapping hotel rooms because they'd only booked it for like one night. And it was just very clear that Kevin didn't quite understand what he was getting into at that point. They forced him to take a lie detector test, but made it seem like it was his choice by offering him that he could go home and sleep instead. It was not done properly. They did not follow the correct protocol for it. And towards the ends of the investigation, Kevin started to feel that he may do some harm to himself and ask that he be able to speak to his doctor. He had a history of mental health issues and um, felt was feeling suicidal. He was feeling like he might hurt himself. So he asked to see his doctor. And as I said then, that came to a natural stopping point for the investigation because Kevin was admitted to Laurel Wood Hospital and stayed there for the next two months. Can I just say before we... I just feel like you read so much if you if you do any like true crime and you have anybody that's like considered a suspect they always like inevitably make themselves more suspicious even when they're trying to comply with the law and I'm like is that partly because our justice system is like corrupted or is it because everything people like seem to know is like stuff from tv and so we're like blue washed on tv like we're like no they're the good guys that's why brooklyn 99 like they're the good guys yeah but additionally to that like we want to solve like the crimes and stuff like that but i just inevitably i'm like i feel like we need more civics courses and like people need to know their rights better that that's my little soap box that i just wanted to like note before we go yeah. on because we as we go on further i think we'll just i'm sorry if you guys have anybody in law enforcement but i we are not speaking well of law enforcement i don't think for the rest of this episode we are also not all police all law enforcement right now we're talking about this specific case so if yes. you're very upset with us i'm sorry but there is evidence that the this was not handled well by law enforcement <laughs> yes like a lot of evidence <laughs> so anyways diving back in so kevin is kind of out of the i won't call it the playing field but he's off the game board right now he's off limits yes, at the moment because he is checked in at a mental health facility yeah so this is fall of 1990 he you know he was at ohio state 
and Laurelwood is on the east side of Cleveland. It is sort of a prestigious hospital with a mental health facility. Um, a lot of notable, more affluent families at the time who had loved ones who were having mental health crises or were seeking help for that, that's where their families went. And Kevin's family had the money to send him there, so that's where he was admitted. And there is um, some, I don't know what the correct word is, there is a worker who was at Laurelwood at the time who was sort of like fresh out of Cleveland State with a psychology degree Ah. (laughs) Um, and was working part-time there and had some interactions with Kevin who then made a statement about it and was later put on the stand during a trial but then there is some conflicting information and (laughs) we're not quite sure that I'm not saying she lied. That would be the wrong terminology. But perhaps she was misremembering things or she was attributing things that she heard secondhand and saying that she witnessed it herself and it got very convoluted. Um, This young woman was working nights and she said that she would see um, Kevin playing chess. As we mentioned before, that was kind of his thing. He used to go play chess at Arabica all the time. And she would often see him playing chess and as an attempt to get to know him and have an interaction with him, she asked if he would teach her. So the two of them would play chess together some nights. She says that one night they were watching the news when the account of a local crime, the unsolved murder of Lisa Pruitt began. And they showed Kevin's picture on screen as the named suspect in her death. As you would, a lot of people in the room were sort of shocked and looked at Kevin, and Kevin got up and left the room. So she gave him a few minutes, and then she followed him to his room. He asked her to leave, and then the next day, it was like nothing happened, and they just went back to playing chess. But she said that as the media was sort of picking up the story, and Mm -hmm. it was like spreading Uh from Cleveland... um, she said that he would spend more time alone, that he was starting to be depressed. And she claims that he said in front of her, I didn't mean to hurt the little girl. I didn't mean to hurt the little girl. Now, do we have any proof that he said that? No. This is one person saying this. Unfortunately, Again, I like you guys can't see my expression, but it's a one of like, really, really... Yeah. And then she said... That also, that's out of context. Lisa Pruitt is the same age as Kevin. Why would he call her a little girl? That's exactly. weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess she was like a, a couple years younger than him, but still not young enough to call them like a little girl. You would you would no, think of her as your peer. If you're, especially if you're sexualizing this person, yes. you're not going to think of them as a little girl. Well... Well, okay. <laughs> okay. Well... He, we have no evidence that he had any inclinations in that direction. Right. There are bad people out there yes. that would. Anyway... Uh, on, on another night in the hospital, in the common area, um, she said that Kevin was just sort of like in a mood and he huffed off and then was muttering to himself saying, well, maybe I did hurt the little girl. Maybe I did do it. And then he punched a wall and said it. And she said it was like he was a different person than he had been. And it was a scary person. I think I never believed up to that point that he was capable of such violence. But that night, that did it for me. So, again, we... 
Right. We we weren't there. We can't say what was. We're we're not flies on the wall. But and this is one one person said this. Nobody yes. else from the hospital overheard any of this. Or and I feel like if you punched a wall at a mental facility like that would be getting you some sort of attention. Yeah. So uh, inevitably. Kevin's lawyer, who is a pretty prestigious lawyer in the area at that time, um, asked Kevin to take another lie detector test, which was given by an expert in the field, Bill Evans. Um, He has worked for both prosecutors and defense lawyers (laughs) for a long time. And this time, surprise, surprise, Kevin passed, maybe because he hadn't been up for like forever and hadn't been dragged out of his dorm by 12 police officers. Wait, wait, are you telling me that if you're doing it not under duress, that, like, your detector test might come out differently? Yeah, interesting. Wow. The method used by the Shaker Heights police that they had given him the test under originally um, had actually been debunked in 1982, according to Kevin's attorney. So he said, like, you're using outdated techniques. Like, it has been proven that that is a flawed system that you're using. Hmm. So the fact that you even used it is questionable. <laughs> and the Shaker Heights police couldn't get the prosecutor's office to take their their circumstantial case to a grand jury. So, unfortunately, Kevin's name was still leaked to the media as the main suspect. Right. So once that's out there... It, it, right, it's it's like toothpaste out of a tube. You can't put it back in. Yeah, and then to add fuel to that fire, reporters discovered that Kevin's dad, Jay Talbot Young, was a law partner of Shaker Mayor Steve Alfred. Oh, so they're trying to like make it a conspiracy. Like obviously yes. he can't be this. Like they're t- they're hiding it. They're S- so they essentially are like it's a cover up. Mm-hmm. So then reporters started like staking out Kevin's house. Carl Monday, who if you are from anywhere near Cleveland, you probably know that name. Like he is renowned for this sort of investigative journalism. Yep. He will roll up to someone's business and like <laughs> bang on the door and yell through the window questions that are like inflammatory. To the point where people would like see Carl Monday and be like, "No, get away from <laughs> me!" and like run. I feel like that's like yeah, that's like every business and like working at a library. That's always like it's a PR nightmare, right? Like you, if Carl Monday is rolling up to your library, something is amiss. And I know we have like discussed like that. Just not that we've had anything inflammatory of that nature happening like to that degree, but yeah. like. If it should. The one time we got close, I thought I was going to have to go to Speedway and buy a 40 and be like, if Carl (laughs) Monday shows up, I'm just cracking it open. (laughs) So this was just a a media frenzy. Um, Kevin was eventually released from Laurelwood on December 12th. And no one could understand why the police weren't just straight up arresting him. And every detective who spoke on the condition of anonymity at this point had said, like, oh, he did it for sure. That's our guy. So everyone's just like, well, then what are you waiting for? Why aren't you arresting him? Because they don't have any direct evidence. I know. And the city hired uh, a PR firm to work damage control. Oh, boy. The police consulted with another psychiatrist to help them, like, as they said before, clockwork orange him. Like, how do we get him to confess? And they, they gave his like statements his interviews the writing samples that they took some of the stuff they found in his uh house and his polygraph results to dr murray myron of syracuse university and after reviewing this information 
Myron suggested that Kevin may have, he uses the term multiple personality disorder. We don't say that anymore. Right. And that he was able to disassociate himself from the murder, which is why he couldn't be pinned down by the polygraph because he was like a disassociating when he took it. So he, at the moment, <laughs> he didn't believe he did uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I will say now we know so much more about mental health than we did. This is 30, 19, this is 1990, 30 so. years ago. And I, there's, while there still is stigma, it is not to the degree it was in 1990, which, you know, here I am kind of thinking they're pretty progressive for like letting them check into like a mental health, faci- like really being in tune of like, I don't feel safe. Like I'd like to check into a mental health facility, but then it carries the huge weight and stigma of like, this you know kevin being investigated solely because you know he's essentially being like typecasted i would say by Mm -hmm. the stigma of his mental health right and on that same note they brought up that lisa's boyfriend had been released from a mental facility the day of her murder also yes and um, so this Dr. Myron was like, well, understand, I've got a spread of one. You've given me no other suspects. The boyfriend, anything you have, send that along just for the sake of completeness of the file, if nothing else. But until another suspect drops out of the sky, I'd say this is a logical suspect, meaning Kevin. So even this doctor's like, well, you've literally given me nothing about this other guy. You're just telling me now that he got out of a mental facility. Right. So again, very telling that they did not give the same information about Dan. They also found the letters that Dan wrote Lisa they were saying like stay away from me oh, I don't want to hurt you with his emo uh, lyrics that in poetry that he was writing to yeah. her yeah so I mean they had at this point just as much evidence I would say to e- Dan. equal weight of well not even equal because Lisa was murdered at in Dan's backyard yeah roughly and 30 feet from his back the door the timeline of it does not add up and neither does Dan's dad or Dan's like testimony of like, well, I called at this time. Well, what were you doing again? Like, well, I was packing my clothes away. Well, I had a phone call. Well, I had yeah. it. I'm like, what are you doing up at midnight? Right. Like, and they and they're like, well, we, we did just as much investigation on Dreyfer as we did on Young. And, you know, I guess the parents could have fashioned this whole story about him coming and hearing the screams and then you know grabbing him and going outside and all this kind of stuff but i don't know and i'm just like you just so badly wanted it to be this one guy didn't you right well because it what a better picture it paints right yeah why blame the the boyfriend who is like a prominent doctor son let's blame but then kevin's not like you know yeah but i guess people have more like inherent trust for doctors than lawyers because like some people are like oh like lawyers are scumbags but like doctors heal people i mean i think there are bad people in every profession so it's true it's true you know you can't just base someone's moral character on their job but listen i don't know tim misney also another like local cleveland reference we are triangulating our location (laughs) yeah clearly around the northeast ohio area (laughs) but he might be a good person i don't know all i know is i don't know his billboards are across northeast ohio and i'm like uh, with your eyebrow i don't know yeah i don't trust him but we do know what he does he makes them pay (laughs) yes that's right (laughs) 
So um, the deputy chief followed up with Dr. Myron again on July 2nd. So this is maybe like a month after that initial him saying like, yeah, I think that Kevin's a good suspect. And um, at that point, Myron had had some time to review the evidence related to Dan. And he had some concerns regarding his behavior on the night of the murder. So Myron said... He calls 911 on his own, and here are all these police vehicles. The crime scene is being established, and Dan goes to bed. I found that unusual, uh, somewhat disconcerting. But that's academic, because it's not Dan that we're going to be interrogating. It's Kevin, and whether or not he is the guy or not, we want to give the full shot to use the best psychological coercion Mm. we can. (laughs) And then later he said, now here's, forgive all the anecdotal sort of thing. We need to operant condition Kevin. Clockwork orange on Kevin, if you've seen that film. And Kevin never actually confessed. (laughs) But... They, the police finally got their indictment on November 24th, 1992. So this is two years later. I, oh, I have a lot of words right now, and but this they're is not nice. The so. only reason they got this indictment is because two patients from Laurelwood came forward claiming that Kevin admitted his guilt to them. So where were these two patients over the last two years? Hmm. Where were they? And what was their interaction with that one worker Right. Who also claimed that. So, you know, it's interesting. Also, also, there is a power dynamic because they are patients. Correct. Like, were they able to leave earlier? Did they get special privileges by, like, admitting this? Like, were they, what was their relationship with Kevin? Like, were they, quote unquote, clockwork oranged by some of the people working in this facility? So, uh, you know, how, yeah, like, did they have it in writing or was it a hypothetical, like, if I did it, we don't know. We don't know any of that, but the fact that they based this indictment off of two other people's admittance of Kevin's confession and nothing from, no direct evidence linking Kevin himself to the murders is highly suspect yeah this would not hold up on a law and order episode marishka hargitay would never stand for this behavior no ice tea would also have some stuff to say and a good pun about it yeah (laughs) i scream you scream but some people never heard the screams (laughs) anyway kevin's father hired mark devan to represent his son and the county prosecutor or the assistant county prosecutor asked the judge to deny bail at Kevin's arraignment, and his lawyer was immediately like, "Absolutely not! It's we're going for a bond of fifty thousand, and we're gonna put their home up as collateral for it. Like he's Ooh. going home. Get him out of here." Then, uh, Judge James J. Sweeney refused to allow them to enter evidence notes that were taken by Kevin's personal psychiatrist because they wanted to like implicate him in the murder, and so they got notes from his personal psychiatrist and they wanted to use this as evidence but in reality there's nothing in that doctor doctor's like notes or file that mentions a confession like there's absolutely nothing that even looks like a confession and the day after lisa's murder kevin had talked about his fear of being drafted and Lisa's murder was only mentioned in passing because it was on the news. I, so you would I, think I, I if did. he murdered someone and right. talked to his doctor the day after the murder that 
there would be signs or that he would be bringing it up. But literally the thing he wanted to talk about is that he was afraid he was going to get drafted and sent to Iraq. And especially it does not fit the narrative either of like all of these like Lisa's friends saying like, oh, Kevin was like obsessed with her. Like if, you know, you're truly obsessed with somebody and like they were murdered, don't you think you would be like devastated, devastated, upset? I mean, if you murdered the person, uh, feeling some sort of way about it. Yeah. June 28th, 1993, Kevin's trial officially began. It was broadcast nationally on court TV. And so the defense's strategy was basically to implicate Dan. Like, they don't have to prove that Kevin didn't do it. That's not how the justice system is. You just have to provide reasonable doubt. Right. So showing that someone else could have done it is all they have to do. Right. And so Devan got Dan on the stand to question him. And he asked him about those threatening letters that he sent to Lisa. And Dan said they were, quote unquote, harmlessly funny. And that Lisa thought so, too. I, what? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if my husband wrote in letters to me that, like, I can't be around you. I'm afraid I might kill you type of, like. I would and not then think that would be a haha, so funny. Well, also, like, if then your husband murdered you or somebody murdered you and these letters were brought up, I would not believe him if he was like, oh, well, Beth thought they were hilarious. Yeah. Haha. <laughs> That's so just funny. how we joke around. Yeah. Stab, stab, stab. I love you. Like, I get, like, the 90s were a part of, like, the nihilist, like, generation for teenage them, but, like, that's... You just don't joke about murdering your girlfriend. Sorry. So, at this point, um, Pete Manon, who was one of Lisa's classmates, actually contacted Kevin's lawyer's office and told him that the kids in the AP posse, so that's, as a reminder, that's what the group of friends that Lisa and Dan kind of rolled with called themselves. He said that the kids in the AP posse had tried to gaslight him into believing that Kevin was guilty, and he didn't think Kevin was the killer, and he thought it was weird that they were trying to push him to believe that. And he said it felt like the police just wanted a scapegoat, and the AP posse were eager to hand them one. So now you have another student who is going to the lawyer saying, like, hey, these kids are going around, like, essentially... Right trying to force everyone to say that Kevin did it. Right. And and you don't know if they're... I mean, they're gaslighting, but you don't know socially, like, this poor kid, like, good for him for, like, being like, no, no, like, I don't believe that. But you don't know what they were like at school. Like, if they're semi-popular, like, kids in this affluent, like, you know, affluent community, they probably made the people that didn't roll with them their wives hell in high school yeah that's just me projecting in, not saying intentionally it, it, or unintentionally that's kind of how it happens yeah when dan was on the stand being interviewed and he was asked um to explain why he went to sleep when the police were outside searching for lisa he said that sleep was his way of escape quote unquote from what i feared had happened so he's essentially saying like I was already afraid that she was dead, and so I was just trying to go to sleep so I didn't have to think about it. I, <laughs> Yeah. Here's the thing. Dan, I, I don't know if Dan murdered, but he's not painting himself in a very good light at all. That is, like, the theme of this entire story. Like, everyone. Everyone is just 
making themselves look bad. Right. If this was like an Agatha Christie novel, I would be like, oh, if this if Dan is a red herring, it is the best red herring I've ever read because I at this point, because it's Agatha Christie, would be like, hmm. I don't think either of them did it. There's too much for both of them. They both look terrible. Yeah. I think it's somebody else. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's a nice, that's a nice segue. Right. <laughs> so like throughout the course of that, um, the court case and interviewing Dan, it came up that the police officer who first arrived said that Dan told him he never heard the screams which then later that became a whole thing that he was like well I heard the screams and I thought it was her so he's already giving he's casting doubt on whether or not he was telling the truth Kevin's dad was interviewed on the stand and he said that at the time of the murder he and Kevin were home playing video games they were playing Nintendo all night what? and they went it's to bed at 1 15 school night what the heck he was in college he was going oh, away yeah, okay Fair enough. He started college like the next Monday. Yeah, that's fair. So it was that's like fair. his last weekend home. So they stayed up all night playing Nintendo. All right. Towards the end of July, after 10 hours of deliberations, the jury found Kevin not guilty. A week later, the Plain Dealer, which is a local newspaper, remember we brought that up earlier with the older couple that had been murdered. Yes. And, in and the, the newspaper world of the area at that time. James F. McCarty, a reporter for The Plain Dealer, wrote an article suggesting that jurors would have voted differently if they'd gotten a chance to see evidence withheld by the judge. So he's he's just found not guilty. And within a week, people are like, oh, well, it was like a sham trial. They didn't Mm. give them all the evidence. And obviously, Kevin was devastated by this. Right. And so he climbed onto a bridge over Interstate 271 and threatened to jump and kill himself oh kevin so a mayfield heights police officer talked him down kevin and his family were obviously like terrorized and terrified of the media right and and this is not even like i can't even imagine if something like this happened now with social media but like this was in the 90s when you had and it wasn't even like the paparazzi type thing like this is like local news stations just that scene in Scream when like Sydney like walks out and she's just bombarded by like police yeah. and like all of like the newscasters and Gail Weathers is like coming up to her and like, let me say the most god awful thing to you at your like most devastating time. Oh no, you punched me in the face. Why did that happen? Yeah. Like it makes sense that, you know, especially given his mental state, it makes sense that he was like, I am not worth anything. And I want to try like, even without social media, I mean this, this ruined his life. Right. I mean, to this day, people in Shaker Heights, if you ask them who did it, they say it was Kevin Young. Right. It's the court of public opinion. Even though he was found not guilty in the court of law, the court of public opinion has claimed that it was him. Right. He And it just carried on throughout his entire life. He's, yeah. He spent the rest of his life like this just kind of followed him. He um, he worked as like a painter for a while, taking odd jobs. But it. It's like any job you go to, if somebody knows who you are, it's going to be uncomfortable. Right. right. He said that he like couldn't get dates because every time he'd go on a date, they would Google him and then they would never like they just delete his number. They wouldn't call him back. He couldn't get a second date. And sadly, Kevin passed away at the age of 44. Right. I don't think they ever came out and said what he passed away from so um i read that it was he had 
obviously he was self-medicating. He did right. have like an alcohol addiction and um, it was determined that it was like the uh, the effects of long-term alcohol abuse. Ah, uh, okay. So but he was only 44. He passed away um, January 14th, 2017. So, it, you know, he he was 44 he was old enough to be like that's seven years older yeah, than i am right yeah now. <laughs> like that he, old enough that you wouldn't know like he could have been a co-worker of like someone our age on the podcast like he could have been a co-worker he could have been like someone within our generational knowledge like and he died from the the effects of public opinion yeah and a, a trial and the probably just the I'm not saying he is guilty. I don't think he is guilty, but just the guilt of like her murder and society's like opinion of him just weighing on him. Yeah. I can't imagine like not even being able to go to like the coffee shop where you used to sit and play chess all the time without everyone just staring at you. Right. So again, like I'm not saying Kevin was an angel. He, he did have some really like terrible racist views that he voiced on things. Right. But again, that's a separate story. <laughs> so I, I mean, it doesn't I'm, make you a murderer. I am on the same page as Beth. I, I do not believe that Kevin murdered Lisa. I don't think he had anything to do with I that. Think, yeah. I think he was just the, the convenient scapegoat. For yes. This. He was the weird kid. So like I said, a lot of Shaker Height residents still believe that Kevin Young killed Lisa Pruitt. But there is evidence that was never presented at Kevin's trial or leaked to the press dun, that dun, dun. suggests other possibilities. And there are a lot of loose ends. Um, if you want to read the book that we mentioned by uh, James Renner, he does go like very in-depth into this information. He spoke with Kevin quite a few times. So he had kind of like a personal investment in trying to clear his name. But some of the evidence that exists you know some people are like well what about dan it could have been dan you're right it could have been dan there is evidence of that <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot of a lot of conflicting information coming from dan's and that really paints him not in a favorable light right but again i would also argue that that is also a very convenient you know we always say it's the husband, it's or, the boyfriend. the husband or the boyfriend she was so close to his property there's the conflicting stories about what happened that night but again, the shoe print that they found did not match his, any of his shoes. The fingerprint that they found did not match Dan or Kevin. So that is enough to imply that there was a third person. Yes. And one person that that could be is David Brannigan. We've mentioned him a couple times. It, when we started off the last episode, we mentioned the elderly couple who were killed down the street from the site of Lisa's murder. Right. And that there were some boys who had broken in next door. Right. Who had witnessed, quote unquote, someone fleeing the house. Right. But nobody could have gone out the back door because it was locked from the inside. And police had found evidence that the person had come in and out through a kitchen window. So that was already some conflicting information. David went to the police actually the day after Lisa's body was found and he said that he'd been at a bus stop on Lee. I think I went into this a little bit in the last episode and he had seen a black man. Again, the same story he told in the first murder. Interesting. <laughs> and 
that that man had mentioned both Lisa's murder and the Porter's murder. So the Porter's had lived eight houses away. So the so these two murders happened a nice chunk of time apart, but obviously it was the exact same suspect at both crime scenes. Yes, and he said that he dropped off his girlfriend at her house nearby, walked past the scene on his way home, described the two officers and drilled the police dog. We brought that up last time too. And neither of these officers saw him at all. They're obviously like they're looking for any evidence. They are like very observant at the moment and they didn't see this guy, which means he was hiding and watching them. Right. And as we mentioned before, the neighbor's house had like that wooded area, which is where Lisa's body was found. And it was wooded to the point that it would have been very easy to hide there. Yeah. Yeah. He also, um, when he got home that night, he he lied and said that he like talked to his mom when he got home and then he took a shower, but his mom was not awake when he got home. It came out later that he had a knife collection and the murder weapon was a knife-like object that they never found. Uh, his girlfriend at that time was like, mm, he absolutely could have been there at that time, given the time when he dropped me off. Also, he lives on the road right behind where that murder happened. Right. And um, he was at the Arabica when he heard that she was going to be there. Yes. And he confessed to breaking into houses in that neighborhood which, around that time for fun. Which, if you don't know anything about... Um, serial murderers or people that are inclined to do kind of violent murders or crimes um there's the fbi actually uses a trifecta of um things that they're like if if the person is inclined to do any of these three things like there is a good chance that they will do violent crime when they get older so one of the things is like bedwetting at like a very an older age like nine ten eleven like you're past the age where you're you're usually potty trained by then pyromania and then so setting fires and wanting to set fires and then things like i want to say it's burglary but then there's also like cruelty to animals and i'm not saying that he was cruel to animals but like if you are into burglarizing people's houses for fun that leads you kind of to a path yeah and the one house that was like not directly behind dan's house where lisa's body was found but the one across the street from that was the house that somebody had tried to break in twice like in the same span of like a week or two weeks and this was like also around that same time so it is very possible that he was out just sort of like doing his thing canvassing the neighborhood trying to break in the one neighbor said that she thought somebody was trying to break into the rental car right So it's possible that he was out there attempting to do some, you know, burglary, some weird hobby of his. And Lisa saw him and he panicked or maybe not panicked and just was like, I'm going to clean up anybody who could snitch on me or. Right. Though I will say, I don't know if it doesn't feel like panic. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a forensic psychologist or investigator, but to me, if you're stabbing, like the first stab wound on Lisa was fatal. And then after that, 21 times from behind and it was from it's. So that's gratuitous. Yeah. That's violent and gratuitous. And then there was markings around Lisa's neck as if 
her necklace was like pulled so and it like yeah pushed so she died quickly but violently correct her body was i'm i'm also not a forensic (laughs) psychologist or scientist but i think that there is evidence also knowing that as a child david brannigan had told this story to his like essentially common law wife they were never married but it was his partner at the time of his death she said that he told the story about how when he was in elementary school there was a kid that was bullying him and rather than outright like fighting this kid or making a big thing of it he made sure that he could sit next to him at lunch and he poured comet cleaner onto this kid's sandwich and just let him eat it that is poison that will literally like tear apart your insides so if that was his response to someone wronging him, right, that is incredibly violent in a different way. Yes. <laughs> so I could very well see like the goody two shoes girl that everybody loves just saw me. She's going to snitch on me and now I'm pissed about it. I'm going to stop her. Yes. Yes. And I'm not again. Listen, all the true crime girlies are going to are gonna come for us and be like, first of all, you don't know nothing about nothing for I know I'm just saying it's there is some evidence that he had been violent in the past there is an explanation for why he would be there he had already lied to the police giving a similar explanation his domestic partners said that he would often bring up Lisa and the porters throughout his life right And if you want to follow that string of things and say that David was the one who broke into the porter's house, it is similar. She was strangled to death with the cord of her iron. It was clearly a surprise. Yes. So it's sort of the same MO. And then David also actually died in 2017 as a result of alcohol abuse. So Hmm. we will never know. No. And unfortunately... We will never know, not only because two of the um, two of the people in the in this uh, have have died, but you know, to Shaker Heights police, it's kind of done. It's wrapped up. Like they assumed Kevin did it, even though he was like acquitted and he didn't. You know. Yeah. Um, and public opinion is like fine with that too. Yeah. I I don't know how Lisa's family feels about it, but I don't either. And it's you know they're they're really the only ones that I think at this point have a say in it. I mean I don't again I don't know how Kevin's family feels about this either, or if his parents are still around. But yeah, maybe Lisa's parents are just like we don't want to drag that up again. Like we've moved on with our lives. We have found some sort of like what piece we can find with it and we don't want to drag it up again but the fact is they do still have evidence right they have physical refusing essentially to investigate it um james renner has been like trying to push for them to reopen this case if for no other reason than to maybe finally get an answer right in that realm or to finally say like no it's very clear this was not kevin um and clear his name posthumously and he actually started the Porchlight Project, which is a nonprofit that raises funds to support families of the missing and murdered. And they specialize in funding new DNA testing and genetic gene- genealogy for Ohio cold cases. And this is relatively new. I think they started in like 2019 and they have already 
helped oh. solve a few cases. That's good. There's so there's too many unsolved yeah. and cold cases in Ohio. I would love. I'm not saying this is going to happen because, like, I don't think they have any DNA evidence really. But if they ever solve the torso murders, that would be like, yeah. <laughs> which one day we will. That was my mind blown uh, <laughs> noise. Uh, one day we will cover the the torso murders. Yeah. Uh, also notorious cold case of Ohio. Like you can tell that my brain is like you got to find a lighthearted way out of this because you're like the torso murders. I was like I don't know that feels like maybe like an Easter time thing, and I don't know why <laughs> my brain connected those two, but it did. It was like you know torsos Easter baskets. <laughs> I. Listen, if I found a torso or like a disembodied foot in an Easter basket, I have a lot of questions for the Easter bunny. This feels like a new terrible horror movie. Yes, it does. I don't, I'm sure there are Easter horror films that I'm just not thinking. Actually, there is, no. The Last Temptation of Christ? uh, (laughs) I was actually (laughs) thinking of April Fool's Day, which is like a legit movie uh that occurs, but um, I can't think of any like Easter slashers. But you know what? I I'm sure Bunicula. <laughs> I love Bunicula. I do too. Did you know there's a stage musical of it? No, I bet it's adorable. The like uh theme is like Bunicula. <laughs> so um, you know, I guess as we're wrapping this up, just something to think about is you know, if you are interested in reading more about it, do check out James Renner's book. Um, which is called Crazy Little Children. Crazy little it is children. a reference to The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And um, essentially, I had the quote cut out. It's like, um, I think it's John Proctor who says it. Yes, he's, he talks about the... It's... it's we, we are what we always were in Salem, but now the little crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom and common vengeance writes the law. Yes, uh, I love... Well, I love the cru. We've never talked about that. I love the crucible. I do too. Um, oh wait! <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we- I was so disappointed when I found out that was not a thing. I know. Um, but yeah, like it is a good reference because in in terms of all of this, it does feel like the teenagers kind of ruled how this and investigation was going to go. Very much as the play is was as an, as an allegory mm-hmm. for. Um, like communism and and the witch hunt in that aspect yes. that's kind of what happened to Kevin in this and yes. so it is a very fitting title he does a really deep dive into it he's got a lot of like direct quotes from the trials and everything also true crime garage has a six part um series on this on their podcast where they also go very in depth. They they read it. It's kind of scripted, so I know a lot of people who listen to them normally didn't enjoy it, but it does have a lot of information and in the actual like transcripts of things read aloud. So if you find this intriguing and you want to learn more, um, or you just want to like read that and be like, Britta said this one thing, but she was absolutely wrong. Like that's <laughs> fine. You can do that. <laughs> yeah, we're you know we're just here to let you guys know and just to be aware not that you know we think you're gonna solve the case or anything but just just to be aware and to like commemorate the life that lisa did get to and and to you know think about the life that she didn't get to live i just i i I knew nothing about this 
until I read that book, which was really just because I had liked other books that he had written. Mm-hmm. Like he he's written some things about like Amy Maholovic, who we'll get into later. Um, but I was just really shocked that I, you know, grew up in Northeast Ohio and I had never even heard of this. And I was alive when this happened. I was four years old. I mean, that's a little young to know this, but right. I'm just surprised that it never, I never heard about it. And then to just read about Lisa and what like an incredible human being she was and how loved she was and right. how talented she was. And it's just heartbreaking. And that is the thing to remember in all of this, regardless of your thoughts on who, on did, who it. did it, is that, you know, a young woman was taken way too soon. So you know, if you, if you knew Lisa, I, I'm sure you share that sentiment. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just, we're trying to be as respectful and honorable to, uh, any victims, families that we talk about in true crime, because, you know, they, they are still living with this and it's still fresh for them. And, and even if they are trying to move on, like it's still something that defines them. Um, so yeah, I guess on that note, uh, thank you again for listening to our two part, our first two parter series. Um, happened way sooner than I thought it would. Yeah, I did. Yeah. But <laughs> honestly, had we not d- made that two parts, um, Beth looked at me and said, we can't make someone listen to three hours of this. N- no, no, <laughs> No. So it's too thank long. you. Thank you for sticking it out. Thank you for coming back for the second half. Hopefully it was um not too torturous to get through. And uh we will be coming at you next week with um our Thanksgiving movie suggestions for Thanksgiving. you. Thanksgiving. Regardless of your thoughts and feelings about Thanksgiving, we're just here to tell you that there are Thanksgiving horror films who would have thought listen there's not a ton of them but they're also not mother's day or april fool's day which april fool's day is the superior of holiday films if we're going to be honest um there's also new year's day too but that's another another list for another day yeah that's like a month from now yeah (laughs) so thank you again for listening to us we are the lake erie library um, you can listen to us wherever podcasts are at. You can find us on Instagram at Lake Erie with two E's library. We have an upcoming book club book discussion, um, which we have not been <laughs> promoting very well. Uh, we will be reading The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. So if you'd like to join us with that, you have a couple weeks left to read that book or to ignore that episode and come back after you've read <laughs> it, or to just listen to it because you don't care one way or the other. But Thank you for being fans. Yeah, it's good. It's spooky. It feels like a, a good choice for this time of year. Yes, so because November is uh, Indigenous... Uh, in Nate, I am screwing up the title of it, but it is uh, Native American Month or Indigenous Heritage Month for yes. the United States. So. Yes. So it is not... a. Uh, not a white person perspective <laughs> on no. indigenous peoples it is written by an, an indigenous american so yeah so we have that coming up thank you as always to our, our spooky sponsor i think that's gonna stick i yeah. like that one thank you again spooky sponsor and everyone be nice to one another 
since we just talked about terrible crime. And of course, as always, stay spooky, friends.